Hello, and welcome back to AOPA's Pilot Information Center podcast series. Today's format is a little different than our previous episodes. Our topic for this podcast is, can I do that? Here in AOPA's Pilot Information Center, or the PIC as we call it, we field an incredible variety of member questions and issues. The idea of this episode is to discuss some of those misconceptions and gotchas that we routinely hear from pilots. I'm Ferdy Mack with AOPA's Pilot Information Center in Frederick, Maryland. We'll go around the table here. Joining me today, for starters, is Craig Brown. Craig's one of our senior aviation technical specialists. How are you, Craig? Oh, fine. How about yourself, Ferdy? Just fine, thanks. Uh, so, how long have you been helping our members here now? 17 years here at AOPA. 17 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, talking about big numbers, uh, one of the other big numbers in your case that comes to mind is the number of hours you have in the 150, 152 series. <laughs> right. That's some, some number, multiple of thousands, isn't it? Uh, it is. Actually, I was uh, since we've recently obtained 152 here, um, I, I, I joke that it's the first airplane I got 1,000 hours in, and it's also the first airplane I got 2,000 hours in. So, <laughs> most of that in the right seat <laughs> and uh, teaching students how to fly. That's a lot of dual given in a, right. in a you know marginally sized airplane. Of so, course. Uh, but, of course, that was one of the workhorses of flight training for many years. Yeah, yeah for many years. And, uh, and one school I worked at, we had five at uh, one given, any given time. Yep. Yep. A little bit of 150 time as well, but not nearly as many. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're very similar. Yep. All right. Going around the table further, next joining us is Paul Feldmeyer, one of our aviation technical specialists in the Pilot Information Center. How's it going, Paul? It's doing good, Ferdy. Good. So tell me a little bit about what you did before you started here. Uh, spent a couple years as a flight instructor and a check pilot for Embry-Riddle and then left for a while, did some UAV stuff, and then came back. To the Frederick area where I'm from and started working here at AOPA. A local like myself, good man. Adam, on the other hand, I believe originates from New York, I believe, right? That is correct. Adam Williams, are finally rounding out our table here, our, another aviation technical specialist. Uh, but you most, didn't come from us from New York, came from us from the middle, middle of the country, I believe, previously, That's right? Amish country, you got it. <laughs> All right, uh, so let's get started. Uh, Adam, Paul, and Craig here helped field some of the some about hundred thousand phone calls and twenty thousand emails, approximately, that we receive from pilots such as our listeners each year. And uh, Adam, Paul, and Craig are well versed in specifics like regulatory and flight training questions, and that's uh, where we'll t- primarily focus today. Uh, questions like the oddball of can I, as an instructor, provide instruction from the back seat of the airplane? And you got two different people in the front of the airplane, one of them's acting, one of them's doing something else, and the third in the back is the only authorized instructor. Mm-hmm. We're not going to quite go down the road that with that question because there are too many combinations for today, but that's just an example of, of uh, the, the, the sort of niche questions that we get on, on occasion. Uh, but for today, however, let's start with, uh, let's start with wings. Uh, the WINGS program, not per- not something that we hear about all the time, but it certainly leads down the road towards confusion as far as what do I have to do in order to regain my ability to act as pilot in command by way of flight review, right? Right. So so what are the common pitfalls there? And WINGS, uh, I'll start with that. Um, the, the WINGS program has been around for quite a few years. It uh, was modified some, several years back. Uh, and it does provide, uh, the, the rules provide that it is a substitute or can be used in lieu of a flight review if done properly and correctly. 
Um, just taking online courses that are available through the WINGS program and, uh, of course, a lot of the Air Safety Institute courses qualify. Just taking online courses does not meet the flight review requirement. Um, you can take as many as you want, of course. There's only certain ones that are that you have to, but uh, somewhere along the way, you do have to couple that with flying. Right. You need to complete a phase of the WINGS program. And... Um, to complete a phase always requires some kind of a flight. So there's no way to complete a phase without doing some flying with an instructor. And um, it's, it's probably going to add up to be more than what, what you would be doing for a flight review. So not a ton of incentive there to do it just so you don't have to do a flight review. But there, there are plenty of benefits to participating in the program, which is why the FAA had, um, has supported it for all these years. Is there still a requirement, uh, Adam, to uh, to do three hours flight training in the wings? I mean, I, I know that was in there in, in times past. The, it, my recollection is yes. Uh, I don't know if that's changed. I was thinking it was three ground and three flight items. Yes. Uh, and the flight items don't necessarily have to be coupled with the notion of an hour. Right. There's specific things that they need to do. Um, whether it be stalls, I, I looked at mine yesterday, and it's it actually splits it between multi-engine and single-engine, which is a little bit unusual. But there are certain tasks that have to be completed so that you can get credit and get signed off by your instructor. So okay, so the point is, at some point, you have to be in an airplane, aircraft. Excuse right. me. Yeah. Um, what about other things to to re-up your ability to, to act as pilot in command or to exercise a flight instructor certificate? You know. Uh, misconceptions about if this check ride re reauthorizes me for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a flight test would also serve in lieu of a flight review. Um, as, long as, as long as the flight test where you evaluate the, the pilot's skills and capabilities, as it were. Mm -hmm. And um, just not too long ago, that was changed to include the flight instructor check ride, which for many years were taboo, you know, the FAA did not acknowledge that a flight instructor checkride met the flight review requirements, but that was recently changed. I say recently, it might have been the last couple of years. But uh, here again, it has to be a flight test. It cannot be just a uh, ground, you know, uh, weekend flight instructor refresher course or even our online program. That doesn't work. Or, or even AOPA's Rusty Pilots Initiative right. now, for example, mm -hmm. uh, as another ground-only option mm -hmm. where, again, you don't necessarily touch an aircraft. Right. All right, any other thoughts on that one? All right, we'll move on. Um, there was uh, We received a lot of phone calls and emails uh, around uh, the end of 2011, early 2012, when the FAA elected to, uh, to put out a rule change and some clarification regarding IFR currency. Uh, what happened there? Well, what they did is they, the FAA attempted to clarify what they had in there. And that they actually did was open the door to several other interpretations. So there is a letter of interpretation and a lot of literature on our website that basically explains that they did change the rule, but the intent of the rule and, and what it says was not changed. You still have the first six months to go get instrument kernel on your own. And then you have the second six months to go up with a with a safety pilot and get current and VFR conditions. And only after 12 months would you have to go and get an IPC. So 
that's basically where it's at. But it's very, you know, reading the regulations, very easy to misconstrue it and think that you only have the six months now. Okay. Yeah, I, I think um, we, we were looking at the rule just earlier, and, and the, the language of it can be quite confusing. But uh, if you actually take a good read through it and, and uh, only at face value, don't read anything into it, you'll see that that what typically was called a six-month grace period, which really isn't, but it gives you six months to get current with a safety pilot. You can't fly IFR on your own. You can fly with a safety pilot with an instructor and get yourself back up to currency. Otherwise, if 12 months has elapsed, then it is clear that the IPC is required or instrument proficiency check. All right. Uh, how about endorsements? Tailwheel, for example, I've got a note here. Uh, for, for those instructors out there, uh, do I need a tailwheel endorsement to give a flight review in a tailwheel aircraft? Help me out. Yeah, that's a good question, but uh, the answer is no with an asterisk. We have, we have to qualify that. Um, the, the pilot you're flying with let's let's use an example um, in a, a decathlon for example mm -hmm. an owner comes to you and wants a flight review in the decathlon well gosh I've never even flown one you're thinking um, which is okay as long as the pilot and owner uh, has a tailwheel endorsement or is grandfathered in from way back when and can act as pilot in command meaning he needs a current flight review himself his, his flight review cannot have expired and uh, of course, current medical and and uh, you know all the other currency requirements he still has. In which case, you are you're just riding along and evaluating his flight skills. On the other hand, if uh, he has an expired flight review and you have no endorsement for tailwheel PIC privileges, then no, you can't. Right, and, and the same goes for all of the other um, endorsements. Um, that are located in Part 6131, and that's the section of the regulations which gives us the complex endorsement, the high-performance endorsement requirement. Those are all in the same category. Those are, are neither category nor class ratings. Um, so the, requ the, the requirement to have a category or class rating, when that's in effect, which it is for a flight review, um, if if a complex endorsement is required to operate that aircraft, um, let's say it's a it was a Cessna Cutlass RG. That's a, a airplane single engine land as far as category and class go, but you're required to have a complex endorsement to act as pilot in command uh, unless you've logged time in that prior to a certain date. Yeah, a lot of those go back to. I remembered it tax day, 1991. That, April, April that's 15th. right. I was looking for that date mm -hmm. just now. That's right. Yeah, so it's been quite a few years. So I imagine a lot of a lot of pilots and students flying today don't have that. No, no, no. But the instructor will always have a complex sign off because they have to have a commercial. They have to have the commercial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, for flight instructors out there who have the opportunity to give a flight review and in an aircraft um, that requires one of these types of endorsements and you don't have that endorsement, consider doing the flight review anyway if, if, it, if the conditions uh, allow it, meaning uh, the, the, the pilot is qualified to act as pilot in command, has a medical, is current, and uh, 
their flight review has not expired. Uh, so consider that. Just be aware that should an accident or incident arise, even though you're not acting as pilot in command, FAA tends to look at flight instructors in a special way in these situations. So there's no guarantee that you won't be held liable for anything that goes wrong uh, on that flight review. So we don't say we wouldn't say uh, stray too far outside of your comfort level. Just know that you're allowed to do it and um, follow your instincts. Yeah, that's good advice. And of course, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, as pilots, we do that pretty regularly. We have to evaluate our own competence level. And if I, if I don't have any experience in a particular uh, aircraft, um, do I want to fly it? How well do I trust the pilot who is flying it? I guess is another question too. But if you, if you know them and you know how they fly and you know the aircraft, and, and probably very little downside to doing it. I mean, I, I've done it myself. I don't know. We'll go around the room here. Maybe some of you guys have, but I've, I've flown airplanes, given flight reviews that I've never even been in before. So. Yep, I have. But uh, the pilot flying was competent, current in it, and I didn't see any downside to it. And they even learned something along the way, which is uh, another plus. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, <clears throat> owner comes to you that has a nice big gas-burning twin in the hangar that you've never laid eyes on before. You start, mm-hmm. you start to consider all sorts of options, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's see. So uh, we'll, just a little more in the instructor realm. One of the things we do here a lot is help flight instructors renew their flight instructor certificate with our online course, our EFERC. Uh, so we talk to a lot of instructors who are coming up against their expiration date and are nervous and anxious to make sure they get renewed. Leading up to that, though, is we also talk to a lot of instructors who aren't paying attention to which side of the card they should be looking at. Paul, do you want to help fill us in there? Well, usually it's on the safe side because usually if you're a CFI, you have your three-month window prior to your month of expiration. And if you get close, you usually get pretty lucky. Um, The issue date's on the front and your expiration date's on the back. And the issue date could be anywhere in that four-month window. The problem happens, and I actually talked to a pilot last week about this, is let's say your wallet gets stolen or it gets lost or something like that. Now you've got a CFI with a new issue date. So what happened in that instance is it was issued in November because the ATP certificate and the CFI were both lost. Going off of that, you have to the end of November, when in actuality the expiration date on the back of the certificate was August. So he ended up being way past his expiration date, not knowing it, and ended up having to take a check ride to reinstate. So for the 120 bucks or 150 or whatever it may cost, it's always a good idea to just renew your CFI. It's always great, but we got to be cognizant of what that expiration date is and realize that there's two dates on the CFI certificate. And not only that... But sometimes the cards aren't printed correctly either, right? Yeah. Craig, you were showing me an example or two. Uh, just a couple days ago, we had um, we had an instructor certificate that had uh, uh, an expiration date of the 7th of November. Mm-hmm. Now, knowing nothing about that instructor, tell me why that's weird. Uh, that's unusual because they're always the last day of the month. And this one just happened to have an expiration date of the 7th of November. I think it was uh, this, this year, 2014. But it had an issue date of the 11th of November, 2012. So there's no rhyme or reason on that. It, would, it looks like it was just a, a human error at airman certification. 
Yeah. So that does happen, but uh, that's an oddball one that we see from time to time, and that could throw you off if you're not thinking about it. That happened to me when I got my initial CFI certificate. It, it was written with an expiration date of, it was like the next month for some reason, and he hand-wrote it. So I had to make a special trip to the uh, Flight Standards District Office to get that reissued. And it was a good thing, too, because not sure what would have happened if I had let that expire. You know, common sense would, would dictate that they just recognize what happened and reissue my certificate to me, but um, I've heard otherwise. So there's not an instructor in this room who wants to go through another CFI initial check ride. So. No, nope, not at all. <laughs> it was not the first time around. Yeah, it was. It was. That's for sure. All right. Uh, so let's see. We'll have our, we have our last bullet point here regarding instructors. Uh, we also do get a lot of questions about, uh, you know, the pilot is looking, the pilot's operating the sport pilot realm, uh, and the instructor is a CFI, or alternatively, the pilot is a private pilot and the instructor is a light sport pilot. There's a mismatch there. Uh, what are some of the issues that, that go on there? We had one recently, I think. Yeah, we got an email where uh, someone was told that a sport pilot instructor could give a private pilot a flight review. And he was told an answer, but he always wanted to check with AOPA, so we ended up with an email about it. Um, definitely not a problem uh, to send us an email to ask a question. Um, but kind of confusing, because in the regulations on their privileges, for a sport pilot, it says, you know, you can do a flight review, and then there's a, some verbiage there, and that verbiage leads you to believe that they can do a flight review or privileges for just a sport pilot, when in actuality, they can actually do, all the way up to ATP, give an ATP a flight review, as long as it's done in a light sport aircraft, because that's the only privilege, instructor-wise, instructor that a light sport instructor will have. So... Definitely confusing. I was actually on the other side of the fence until I got clarification myself, because it just doesn't sound right. But it is true, the light sport instructor can give a flight review to other pilots of higher grades of ratings. So just to clarify, the, the reason this strikes people as odd is that a sport pilot flight instructor, as a pilot, only needs to have a sport pilot certificate. They don't need a private or a commercial or anything else. Mm -hmm. They only need a sport pilot certificate. They also need a certain level of experience too before they're eligible, but mm -hmm. still, um, you know, they've, so, so the idea that, they, that that individual can provide a flight review to an airline transport pilot uh, just is counterintuitive. But um, during our, our conversations with the people who actually wrote these rules and the people who administer the rules uh, today, at FAA, they've all verified that that's the intent and that's the and that's the rule. But the key is it has to it can only occur in a light sport aircraft. Mm -hmm. So a, a sport instructor cannot give a flight review in our decathlon like we talked about earlier. It has to be in a light sport aircraft. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And of course, for questions like that, definitely uh, give us a call if you want us to help you uh, figure out the ins and outs. Because uh, sometimes those questions come to us, and we're quite frankly divided as a as a, a division as well. Uh, again, based on the, the wording and based on the intent, and based on just 
what might seem like the likely outcome or answer. Right. Sometimes it's just a question of what seems most likely and then using the regulations to ideally agree with that. Mm. Yeah, it took a couple of days for us to really drill down to the bottom of, of that of that question. So And it all hinged I, off of the word or. Right, right. Just um, <laughs> one of the legal nuances of, of the way these things are written. And that, that can um, take a supposed meaning and transform it into something else. So it's one of the great questions that we got recently. Yep. All right. Um, <clears throat> moving out of the instructor realm, let's, let's get on to pilot tricks uh, as far as iPads. Where would you guys like to start with that? iPads solve everything. <laughs> I, now, iPads are great. I grew up using paper charts, and I'm I've like I'm largely in the iPad realm. It's it's a great tool, but there are lots of questions, lots of ways to legally use them and, and not right. Basically, the first thing, if you're thinking about using it or you're using it, and you have a question, you can always call us. But there's great advisory circulars. There's great information on the web, not just AOPA's website, but other places where you can research this. I mean, you can always call, give us a call. But I mean, there's there's great information out there. But the first thing is 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 basically asking the question. Don't don't assume that you can do something and go out there and get yourself in trouble. Like, like, do not use an iPad with geo-referencing to shoot an, an actual instrument approach. It does not replace an instrument certified GPS. It's there for situational awareness. In all intents and purposes, that's really all it's there for. It is a replacement of your paper charts and to help you be more situationally aware. And that's really what it's there for. So it's not meant to be some gizmo that pulls you out of the fire or anything like that. It's, it's really just there to help you. But what if I buy that $99 GPS from Amazon that provides position information to my iPad and it says WAS? Doesn't that give me something? It gives you more accurate situational awareness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the best way to look at it is if you couldn't do it with paper charts, don't expect the iPad to do it for you. And if you live by that, then you'll usually be on the safe side of things. Um, the FAA really doesn't care for Part 91 operators what you do with an iPad as long as you, like I said, don't use it to replace anything that a paper chart wouldn't do for you. Um, when you get to 135 and 121 and other types of operations, that's when they want to see things. But really, it's up to the, the pilot in the command to determine that it's not going to endanger his flight or interfere with his aircraft. And as long as he does that, should be in the clear. And even in a more fundamental manner, Craig, you know, uh, some pilots are fearful that they might be violating the regulations by using an iPad at all, meaning don't I still have to carry paper? Mm -hmm. What's the thought there? <clears throat> yeah, and then really, I, I, the way I describe that to, to the pilots that call us is it's a personal choice that you have to make. Um, uh, Paul mentioned a few minutes ago. There's there's nothing in part. I, there's no rule that the three of us and then Ferdy can find that says you must carry a paper chart on board the airplane when you're flying Part 91 private type operations. Um, there's the current information rule or regulation, and then there. But there's nothing to deal with um, required composition or makeup of charts. And, and that's where it comes in. Uh, you know, I can't show it to you. It doesn't exist. So 
you carry what you want to carry. If it's paper charts, that's fine. If you want to carry all your charts on an iPad, that's fine. If you want to carry them both, that's fine. It's a personal decision that uh, the pilot has to make. How comfortable are you with that iPad? And, uh, and uh, is, is it uh, charging? Uh, do you have a problem with the battery? Can you see it? Uh, there's light issues that we hear about, you know, depending whether you're flying a day, night, uh, clouds, sunshine, you know, what have you. So you, you have to make the call on that. I think that's really the best advice. It's okay to use, uh, but that doesn't that, that's not necessarily permission to go ahead and use it. You have to make the decision based on your experience on the aircraft you're flying. All right, by the way, uh, it's part 9121 that, that um, indicates... Uh, the portable Right, it's, it's the portable electronic devices rule. It indicates how pilots can go about determining... Uh, whether or not their portable electronic device is is okay to be carried on board during flight operations. And even there, it's a pretty short list, but then we have this catch-all at the end, which says uh, uh, it lists a few, such as hearing aids, pacemakers, and then it goes on to say any other portable electronic device that the operator of the aircraft has determined will not cause interference with the navigation or communication system of the aircraft on which it is to be used. So, like so many other things, um, the liability is placed on the pilot. If uh, FAA won't tell you you can't do it, but if you are doing it, uh, you're responsible for any any uh, consequences that may arise. Uh, so it's been, but it's been pretty well determined that the the iPad or any other uh, commercially available tablet uh, device. Uh, doesn't cause substantial interference with any onboard equipment that we typically use. So it, it, it's again, it's a judgment call. Um, there's no indication that it would be unsafe to do so. But again, the liability is on the pilot. Yeah, and that, that's a good point, Adam. In, in my previous life, one of the jobs I did was picking up retrieving airplanes that the company had bought. And you're always flying something that you, nobody's nobody you're familiar with has seen before or flown before. And the only two rules I ever had is uh, that first flight, you never fly at night, you never fly in the clouds. Because if anything's going to go wrong, that's what's going to happen. That's where you're going to learn the airplane. And I think the same applies here. Um, if you're taking up an iPad with all your charts on it first time, Go up on a nice day VFR flight so you don't have to deal with uh, any of those issues that could come up. It'll give you the opportunity to figure out if, it's, uh, if it works, if it doesn't work, um, any problems with it. Yeah, iron them out before you get into more challenging conditions. Just like any avionics or anything else, yeah, just because you know how to use a Garmin 430 or 530 doesn't mean that you should go and rent a G1000 and go fly in solid IMC conditions. It's it's part of your responsibility as PIC to get yourself prepped and prepared for flying. So that's kind of where we're at. Good. You got any others you want to toss in as freebies? Softballs at the end? Anything you heard today? or Truth and leasing clause? Oh. <laughs> Sparrows, please. <laughs> what about subrogation? Let's go into that. Mm -hmm. That's actually come up a couple of times this this past week and a half. Yeah, it seems like people are getting educated. What's subrogation? Well, basically, you rent an aircraft. It's covered by the insurance company at the flight training department or wherever FBO, whoever you rent it from, and then 
they'll cover the airplane, that's all well and good, but it doesn't mean they can't come after you to fix their damages. So a lot of flight schools, um, I actually talked to, to one guy who was renting a plane where they had a no subrogation clause because so many pilots refused to rent from them hmm. because they had to carry extra insurance. And he said, well, that's fine. I'll go to somewhere else or I'll, you know, just borrow my buddy's plane. So uh-huh. it's best discussed with AOPA insurance agency to see what you need, but you probably should get a copy of the lease agreement or the rental agreement or what have you so you can speak intelligently about it to, to our uh, brokers. But it's come up a lot. And even people that haven't even started flight training, they're worried about it. And then tell them, look, get this stuff hammered out now because the last thing you need to be worrying about is, well, if I hit this runway light, am I going to have to end up going to court over it? So, Some schools may require a rental or a non-owned policy before they hand you the keys as well. Yeah. A lot of people will call up and say, well, they're requiring me to have rental insurance. I'm like, well, that's great. At least they're being up front with you. It's the places where it's just sign this. You're good. And then you find out you get a letter in the mail or you get somebody, are you this so-and-so, and and here's a letter. That's no good. It's a siren song in my mind. You know, you go and you sign that rental agreement at the FBO, and one of the ones I'm familiar with personally says that, you know, the, uh, the policy that is covering that aircraft that you're flying uh, has a $1,000 deductible for singles and 5000 for t- multis. And you see that and you think, oh, so if I fly this airplane and ding it, I'm liable for a $1,000 maximum out of pocket because the insurance company, that's what uh-huh. I see the word deductible, right? Mm-hmm. Huh. No, it's and fine. the FBO or the flight school is liable for a $1,000 deductible. Mm-hmm. I also the fifty thousand dollar repair they have to pay and send you the <laughs> the bill. I also wonder to what extent that instructor who's sliding that rental agreement across the table to that student is able to even completely and and yeah. uh, explain that. Probably not. Right. Can't probably probably not. I never could. I couldn't at the time either. And instructors are so broke that it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it's, they're not going to come after you anyways because they're not. You can't get something from nothing. <laughs> blood, blood from a stone. Blood from a stone. Right. right. All right, guys. We'll wrap it up here. Uh, thanks so much for all these tips and tricks and the stories and background. And uh, hopefully, we'll do it again soon. So thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. And to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, if anyone has any aviation-related questions, AOPA members can contact our pilot information staff here Monday through Friday at 800-USA-AOPA. That's 800-872-2672. Then press option two for our aviation technical specialists. Also, uh, if you have any podcast questions or ideas, we haven't really had a lot of questions come in yet so far about the podcast series. Go ahead and send us an email at pilotassist at aopa.org and include podcast in the subject line. Thanks. We'll see you.